We're going to continue looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, um, we're just going to spend some weeks here because there's a lot of good stuff here. And I don't want to go too fast because as I've just been studying and meditating on this passage, I just thought there are so many good things that that we as a culture and as individuals need to learn from this passage. You know, it's becoming more popular to hear people say things like, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in hell. Yet many of these people still speak of dying and going to a better place. I find that interesting. Now, what does that tell us about a culture that denies hell, but affirms heaven? Denies God, but affirms heaven. Recently, Michael Jackson's funeral uh, just had this incredible celebration and people and, you know, you remember how it was. It just pretty much clogged up the whole interstate in this area. And they spoke of him as being at peace, of being in a better place, of finally being freed from the trials of those who are constantly trying to bring him down. And to my knowledge, Michael Jackson never repented of his sins and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And you know, if a person dies without Christ, they are not in a better place. They are in a far worse place. They would be more than glad to get out of hell and come back and suffer here on earth. They're not happier, they're sadder than they could ever be in this world. I've seen, I've done a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of memorial services. And and I've seen people console themselves, a loved one's death, when that person was a God-hater all their life. And talk about that person is, oh, they're so wonderful. And they were so this and so that. And they had such a nice yard and were a good friend and whatever. And what's interesting is even sometimes people who who don't even believe in God, who are self-proclaimed atheists, will get up and, and give some anecdote about the person's life and, and, and say yes, and we're glad they're in a better place. I just think, really? Really, are you sure? And it's true that some people go to a better place. And Jesus described them as the few, but most go to a... Not better place. Jesus spoke of them as the many. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I served jury duty this week. Happy day. And so I was in there, you know, and I'm in the courts and I've been studying this text and I was just thinking about the whole justice of God and what God did and what a person says when they say, I don't believe in God. And I just began to think about, you know, what what if you were found guilty of first degree murder and, and you were sentenced to death and and right before you're ready to leave the courtroom, some man that you don't even know comes forward and says, uh, Your Honor, uh, could I make a request? And I'm willing to die in this man's place. I'm willing to suffer death by lethal, lethal injection um, because of what he did. And the judge looks at this person and says, 
are you insane? It's like, no, no, I'm clothed in my right mind. I, I just love this. I know this man doesn't know me, but I love him and I'm willing to give my life for him. And after the judge talks with this man to see if he is in his right mind, he says, okay, but he says he, he needs to go to prison until you've paid the price. And justice has been served. And so shortly thereafter, the man dies, is executed by lethal injection. The prison guards come and fetch you out of prison. They take you before the judge. And the judge says, well, is it ever your lucky day? Because that man that you don't even know loved you enough to die in your place. And so... If we're willing to accept his death on your behalf, you can go free. Now, what if you replied to the judge, no, no, I don't even believe you exist. I don't even believe in the death penalty. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to be fine. Now, what do you suppose the judge would do to someone like that? He would surely become angry, infuriated that you had such a gracious offer, which cost somebody their life. And yet now, you not only won't receive it, you won't even acknowledge him or the person who died to set you free. Well, Jesus is just one such person. He is the Savior, He is the judge, and He is the executioner. And being infinitely just, He must punish every sin to its full extent. Yet in His desire to save you out of love for you, He came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived in this sin-cursed place, having departed from His glory in heaven, And willingly gave himself up, stepped up and said, I will die in the place of your sins. I will suffer God's wrath in your place. I will take the punishment you deserve upon me so that you can go free. But how do you think Jesus will respond on judgment day as you stand before his throne and you look him in the face and you say, I don't even believe you exist. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in life after death. Pretty foolish, isn't it? Do you think he'll go, oh, 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 okay, then just come on into heaven. Listen, denying God, Jesus' death for you, or that hell exists doesn't make those realities go away. It just makes people more comfortable on their way to everlasting ruin. While unbelievers often ask Christians, yeah, please do not. Sometimes they command you, stop sharing the gospel with me. Don't talk to me about your religion. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in hell. Praise God for those who speak anyways. I mean, if you were a parent and your child needed to take some medicine in order to save their life, and well, what would you do if they refused? Say, oh, okay. Go ahead and die then. Is that what you do? No, no. You'd probably go through several stages of interaction with your child. 
First realizing they were ill, you might begin to plead with them, please, please take your medicine, just take it down, it won't be that bad. And if they say no, then what happens? Then you go into command mode, take your medicine. And then if they still won't do it, you grab them and you pinch their little nose until their mouth pops open to take a breath and then down the hatch. Why? Because you love them. Because you love them. You hear people talk about, ah, you're always cramming religion down our throat. Well, praise God for the force feeders. And we wouldn't have to do that if you would just take it from our hand. I mean, can we really do that? Can we really just say, you know, I, I, I approach my uncle who doesn't know the Lord. And I said, you know, the Bible says, I don't want to hear it. So I just figured, okay, I'll let him perish in hell. I started to speak and he didn't want to hear it. So I'm just going to let him die. But think about this. I know a few of you grew up in a Christian home and were saved out of the womb. Not. Um, you can't remember when you were saved. Um, you just, all you know is here you are and you grew up around godly people and you love the Lord. But most of us remember a time when we came to the Lord and most of us remember the time before that. And the first time you heard about God, you said, "Oh, oh, I repent. Is that right? No. Usually what happened is somebody came to you and kind of offended you. And another person came and they kind of offended you. And then another person came and they told you about Christ. Now he died in the cross for sins. I need to repent. And you said, no, no, no. And they kept coming after and coming after and coming after. And then finally, by God's grace, you believed and were saved and your whole life changed. Now, are you thankful about that? Or, or would you just prefer that somebody would have come to you and say, hey, you know, I'd like to talk to you about what Jesus... No! Okay, perish in hell. See, I think sometimes that's how we act. We act as if, you know, if there's any resistance at all, well, you know, I don't want to go, listen, go toe-to-toe. Fight for their good. Cram it down their throat if necessary. Work them. I mean, they aren't going to hate you if they come to the Lord because you prayed for them, you pleaded with them, you commanded them, you tried to persuade them. They'll love you for it. I've talked to people here who have said things like, I had so many people share the gospel with me. I'm I'm just so thankful to be here. I rejected Christ so many times. I rejected him time and time again. It's like everywhere I went, people were sharing the gospel for years. I could think of a hundred people who shared the gospel with me. And then that last time, praise God, didn't give up on them. And they came to faith. And so we need to pray, we need to ask for courage, we need to speak the gospel, not give up, because the consequences are exceedingly grim for those who die without Christ. Last week we started to look at this parable, the rich man and Lazarus, and this is a section where Luke has compiled teachings of of Jesus that have to do with money and earthly possessions. And, and we have kind of a positive example and a negative example. And the, the, the strange thing is, and if you're a Jew, you'd see this more in Jesus' time. But the Jews during Jesus' time believed that if you were rich, then you surely were on your way to heaven. Because the reason you had money is because God was blessing you. And the reason God blessing you is because he loved you. Therefore, surely you were on your way to heaven. 
Yet when Jesus teaches in this section, the first time he teaches, he teaches about the unjust or wicked steward and praises that guy. Why? Because even though he was wicked and even though he was unjust, at least he was smart enough to take his opportunities, his resources here and now to provide for his earthly future. And so in that way, he is a man to be praised because at least he took what he had and used it to secure his temporary future. And he says, that guy is wiser than the sons of light. Because there's many who know the truth, who aren't taking their earthly possessions and aren't using them for the kingdom. And so because of that, Jesus praises the unjust steward. And then he switches and talks about the rich man and Lazarus, where as soon as he says there was a rich man, they go, oh, that guy's on his way to heaven. Then he ends up in hell. And then the poor guy whom the Jews would think, well, obviously the man's a curse. He's probably sinned or his parents have sinned. And that's why he's so impoverished and sick. And that's why he's so miserable because obviously God's not blessing him. He's sitting next to Abraham in glory. So we have this really radical change of thought that's going on in the mind of the disciples as they're learning from Jesus about the truth of the matter. And not what was commonly held to be true. There was a great reversal because the rich man lived in splendor in this life and then found himself in hell. And the the poor man, Lazarus, he was just, you know, sickly and dying and thrown at the gate of the rich man and perishes. But then he's in glory and he's not just kind of in average heaven. He's next to Abraham. I mean, he's the big guy. He's the, you know, father of the nation of Israel. I mean, you know, if you would ask the, a Jew, you know, in heaven, who do you want to sit by? It's like, Abraham. Well, what, what if that seat's full? Moses. What if that seat? You know, they would have in their mind very clear distinctions about who they would wish to, to sit by. David. Yes, Abraham was at the top of the best places to sit. And just like John in his gospel speaks of, of lying in Jesus' breast, so we have Lazarus who is lying in Abraham's bosom. The whole idea is a feast there. We'll get to this in weeks to come. The feast of enjoying the glories of heaven. Now, this parable does not condemn being rich as some have taught. That's not the, the issue. Um... The rich man has not had faith in God and it's apparent in how he did not use his resources for the glory of God. How much resources you have is a really no consequence. We know that because the rich man, Abraham, who's was exceedingly rich, is in heaven with the poor man, Lazarus, who hardly had any resources. But he's in heaven, too. So it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. This is not a diss on rich people. This is a reminder that when you love the Lord, you will take whatever he has given you and use it for his glory. And so please follow along as I read Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. And we'll look at a piece of this again this morning. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. 
And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that they he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, from this text, I am going to point out to you eight realities of hell. So that you who don't know Christ, hopefully will come to terms with the the peril you're in, that you're gambling with your own soul, and that those who know Christ will be in motivated to share the gospel with the lost. And for this morning, I'm just going to look at the first of the eight principles. Sorry. I just couldn't couldn't get another one in there. Now, I'm going to speak this morning primarily to you who don't know Christ, and you're thinking, well, Jack, you know, this is a church. I mean, aren't we all saved here? No, we're not. I think a lot of you know you're not. Some of you aren't sure. Some of you think you are, but you're not. And so I'm going to speak to you this morning. The first thing we learn is death and hell are approaching for the wicked. Look at verse 22 towards the end. Where after it talks about Lazarus' death, it says, And the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes. Now just stop there. I think we all understand that death is an inescapable reality. I think most people, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who thought they weren't going to die. Um, There's probably some out there who are deluded, but death is pretty much agreed upon by all. Though we don't like to talk about it, that we don't like to dwell on it, that we don't want to think about it. We would prefer to just kind of put the blinders on it, just put that reality, an inevitable thing, this hugely important thing aside and not think about it. We need to think about it. God said to Adam in Genesis 2, 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The Hebrew lily reads, and dying, you shall die. In other words, the day you eat of it will start a process of death within your members. And that process of death will continue until you actually die. 
Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 and 2, there is appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul that sins will die. Romans chapter 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Hebrews 9.27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. It's clear. We're all going to die. I think most believe that, and that's a good start. But we just need to dwell on this whole idea of death this morning. And I know some of you are probably thinking, oh man, that seems kind of morbid. Do we need to like do that? You will get a blessing from it. I am sure you will get a blessing from it. We need to think about our mortality. I don't think we do it enough. So let's talk about death. So we've put the first brick on the cornerstone. You're going to die. There's another one. We'll stick that one next to it on the other side. Do you know when you're going to die? Uh, You don't. You don't even need to answer the question. I know it. I mean, you may think you're going to die at a certain time and people may be able to guess, but even the man who's been sentenced to death right before they, you know, take him out with a lethal injection or whatever, some lawyer may pop in and say, wait, wait, I've got a court injunction. We discovered, you know, another piece of evidence. He may be innocent. And he may go free. Though brought to the precipice of death. You know, you may, um, you know, get a call from your wife you, you, you saying, hey, your mom, your dad is in the hospital. They're about ready to die. You need to go see them. The doctors don't think they're going to live uh, very much longer. And so you get in your car and off you go and you're distracted and you're thinking and kind of traumatized by the news and you run a red light and pow, somebody kills you instantly. You're dead. And then they get better and live another 20 years. You know, you got a little scratchy throat and you go to the doctor and you tell him, he goes, well, it might not be anything. We'll do a culture, see if it's strep throat and give you some antibiotics. You go home, you take one, you have this severe reaction. You're crawling to the phone. You call 911 and before the paramedics get there, you're dead. It happens all the time. These things happen all the time. You don't know when you're going to die. And I know, especially little kids, that, you know, it's like we don't even want to talk to them about death because, because it might scare them. Good. They should be scared of death if they don't know Jesus. There's some little kid, I'm just going to go to the park. I'm just going to go to the park and, and play catch with some kids in the, in the park. And I'm riding my bike and I hit a little bit of sand and pop out in traffic and whap, you're gone. They had no thoughts of death. People don't know when they're going to die. You know, it happens. And, and when it happens, sometimes it just shocks us because we think, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And it amazes me when you hear, you know, Christians chattering about, did you hear that so-and-so died? Everyone dies. Did you hear about the terrorist bomb and all those people died? Everyone dies. Everyone dies. Just get used to it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And you don't know when. You don't know when. Everyone dies. And I know some of you are probably saying, no, no, no. Uh, But these people died suddenly. (laughs) 
doesn't everybody die suddenly? No, no. What I mean is they, they kind of died before their time. Really? I have news for you. They all died on time. <laughs> on God's time. Job says, man who is born of women is short-lived and full of turmoil. And he goes on to say, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. God determines how long you're going to live and he won't let you go a day past that and he won't let you die before that. Psalm 139, 16, the psalmist prays, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God determines how long you're going to live. You're going to live, and you're going to die, and it may be young, and it may be old, but you're going to die, and you don't know when, and your days are determined. Fourthly, if you don't know Christ... You're gambling with your soul every moment you live without giving your life to Jesus, without believing on Jesus Christ in a saving way. I had an uncle who got into gambling and got into more gambling, got into more gambling. And one day he was so wound up, he was so sure of the sure deal that he put his house and his retirement down and lost it all. And the people he was gambling with were the kind of people who always got paid. He lost it all. But you know, that's, that's what's happening. Uh, when you live your life, every moment you're living your life without knowing you're saved, without knowing Christ, it's like, you know, okay, I'll throw my soul on the roulette rule. You know, come on, green. You know, you're playing blackjack with your soul. Your eternal soul. You're, you're gambling. Now you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, but pastor, I know you're into this religion thing, but I don't believe in God. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe a life after death. I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. And you know, if there is a heaven and there is a God, I'll find out after I die. And God will look at me and he'll see that I've been a pretty good person because if he exists, I'm sure he's a loving God. And therefore, he'll let me in because I know I've been better than others. I want you to hear God's thoughts on the matter. The word of God says in Romans 1.19 that you know about God. That which is known about God is evident within you. For God himself has made himself evident to you, to every one of us. Now you may say, I don't believe in God, but God says you know he exists. So say what you want. I'm going to believe God rather than you. How has God made himself known to you? Several ways. Verse 20 goes on to say, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I mean, do you actually think matter has always existed? That it just kind of is eternal? That nothing ever brought it about? That matter having no intelligence... No will, no volition, 
assembled itself into all of us by nothing. You really believe that? You believe in spontaneous generation? Here's a lump of dirt. It'll turn into something. It'll turn into a turtle soon. You actually believe that? Scientists say it can happen, but if you believe in evolution, that's what you believe. I mean, you look at the stars. Look at the planets. You look at all their orbits. Doesn't that tell you something? I mean, you know, when we send up little satellites, we've got to constantly adjust them so they don't go off into space or burn up in the atmosphere, right? Who adjusts the moon? For all these thousands of years, who has kept the moon the perfect distance from the earth? And all the other planets which are all twisting and spiraling and rotating in that big complex thing we call our solar system, which is nothing but a little part of a larger thing called a galaxy, which is nothing but a littler part of a larger thing called a universe. I think it's all random and chance. They tell you that there is a God, that he is a God of power, a God of wisdom, a God of order, a God who is intelligent, and a God who is making himself known to you. I mean, think about it. What if we had like this giant bomber and we took all the materials for the children's building and just had that bomber just dump them out of the plane? Now, how many times would we have to do that until all those materials assembled themselves into the children's building? You think, that would never happen. Hear me out here. One cell, one cell of your body is more complex than that entire children's building. One strand of DNA is more complex than that whole children's building. And you're trying to tell me it just happened? That is idiotic. That is stupid. That is foolish. That is why the Bible says the fool has said in their hearts, there is no God. I mean, come on. God says, you know, he exists. And you may say, well, I'm an atheist. Well, call yourself what you are. God has revealed himself to you. He's done it in creation. And that's not all. He's also put his law in your hearts. You have a sense of right and wrong. You know, when you read the papers and, and these people who don't want God in our society are trying to make laws, moral laws. So who's right? Well, I don't know. This seems right to me. I mean, everybody seems to know that just walking up to somebody and punching them in the face is not generally good. (laughs) Why is that? But see, if there is no God, then there's no right or wrong. And I can punch you. It's like, hey, it's my law. I do what I want. You do what you want. And I run faster than you. So after I hit you, I get away. (laughs) You see, you can... You can just go off into nowhere as soon as you get rid of God. But everybody seems to have this sense of right and wrong, this conscience that accuses them or defends them. And Paul says those two things work in concert. The law of God written in your heart and this conscience which works with that so that it proves that you are different than the animals. Have you ever had a parakeet feel bad it did something wrong? You know, some fly groveling before you. I'm so sorry I flew in your face and landed on your chicken. No, 
We are different than fish and trees and birds and animals. We are created in the image of God. We are created to reflect back to God some of his very own attributes. So why I hear you saying, I don't believe in God. I just want you to know, I don't believe you. Because God tells me he has revealed himself to you. So you know he exists. So think about it now. You know you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. Your days are numbered. And you know there's a God. Say what you will. You know there's a God. And experience will absolutely confirm it soon. And so I know that some of you are just thinking right now, well, this is, this is a little uncomfortable. This is, I don't like you speaking to me this way. I'm trying to live in my little bubble. I've constructed this bubble to make myself feel good in my sin and my rebellion. And you're kind of like getting in my face and being a little bit obnoxious and a little confrontive. You make me feel uncomfortable. Oh, I am so glad. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon speaks of this in a sermon entitled A Bridgeless Gulf, saying, quote, ungodly ones that are present today, do often think our company a great nuisance and perhaps while I am preaching my alarming words annoy you ah we shall not annoy you long does your mother tease you when she bids you to seek the Lord she will not tease you long when I bring home the judgment to come is the subject obnoxious to you I shall not ask your patience long we shall be separated If you go your way and follow after sin and wrath, there will come a dividing time. And oh, let me say to you, you would give worlds if you would had them. You would give them if they were solid diamonds to hear again the voice which now fatigues you and to listen once more to those plaintive invitations which vex you and spoil your mirth. Oh, sirs. I say ye may well have patience with us for a little time and bear with our importunities for we shall not plague you much longer. We beseech you to come to Jesus. We would pluck you by your garments and beseech you to flee from the wrath to come. Forgive us for being thus earnest for even if we should fail with you, you will soon escape the importunities of our love. A few short months of mortal life and then you will be far away from all religious discourses and all spiritual talk of things to come. You will be in your own company, but I warn you this will yield you little enough content, end quote. And so I just ask you to hear me. Hear me out this morning because I know some of you are kind of gritting your teeth. Listen, pretty soon I won't be bothering you anymore. God's view is that he exists. And in fact, that is the official name he gave himself. The great I am the one who exists. And since I have to say, well, am I going to believe you or believe God? I'm going to go with God. Now, here's a scary thing. The rich man in our parable who is in hell, he believed in God. He believed in the right God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not only did that, he believed the scriptures because the scriptures were the ones who taught him about Abraham. Not only that, he even believed in the resurrection for he asked Abraham to raise Lazarus from the dead. But in spite of all these correct beliefs, he still ends up in hell. 
I say that because there are many in the church who call themselves Christians who say they believe a lot of things and those beliefs are correct according to the scriptures. But if they die today, they will end up in hell. You don't get to be a Christian because you come into the room. You get to be a Christian because you place your faith in Jesus Christ and are born again. And if you die not having been born again, no matter how great your knowledge is of the scriptures, you will perish forever. And so I just want to talk to you about this and talk to you about the afterlife. You know, there's so little discussion about this these days. I just feel like I need to counteract the culture. What happens when the rich man dies and goes into Hades? And what is Hades anyway? That's not really a term we hear very much. It's one of those terms that's borrowed from Greek mythology, actually. But since so many are denying the existence of hell, I think we just need to talk about it. In general, I think everybody knows, whether they acknowledge it or not, or believe it or not, that hell is supposed to be a place of everlasting torment, where people who die without living, believing for God, those people who have rejected Christ perish for all eternity. The Old Testament chose to use a word called sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament term that is kind of the broad hell term in the old testament it's that place where both the righteous and the unrighteous went they both the believers and unbelievers are are described as going down into sheol now there are some places where sheol is described as a scary place of divine judgment a monster that swallows his victims live there's a place deep in the earth a place of dust a land of darkness and shadows and on and on it goes so yeah there is a scary side But it's also the place where the righteous go. And so that tells us something, doesn't it? That whatever's happening in the Old Testament in Sheol, in the grave, in that place where the righteous and the unrighteous descend, there must be a place there, in there, that is some place of comfort and rest to the righteous and another place of torment and judgment for the wicked. And guess what? That's exactly what we see in our text, isn't it? That's exactly what we see in our text So there is Sheol. There's another term that's mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to give you these kind of in alphabetical order. One is Abaddon, and Abaddon is uh, uh, just speaks of the grave. It seems to be kind of a parallel to Sheol. It's a place down there in Sheol, at least. Um, And uh, in the New Testament, that word is used in, in Revelation 9, where it speaks of this time period where... These demons are released from the abyss. And that the chief demon has a name, Abaddon or Apollyon. And they come out of the place which is called the bottomless pit. Now, the Old Testament uses the term pit, people going down to the pit, and almost always uses it in a negative way. You know, you're going to die and you'll descend into the pit. I mean, it just doesn't sound very good. And in Revelation 9, verses 1 and 2, and verse 11, it speaks of the bottomless pit. And you think, well, is the pit of the Old Testament the bottomless pit of the New? I I think so. Well, if the abyss and the bottomless pit are the same thing, and it's clearer that they are when you look at Revelation 9, then we can assume that the abyss, the pit, the bottomless pit, and Abaddon are all the same thing. Now, there is another place which is also described that seems to be down there, 
And it's a really interesting place. It's called Tartarus, and we're going to get that in a moment. But we have all of these terms, and they seem to be used interchangeably, and most of them are used to describe where these unbelievers go when they die and suffer this judgment. The abyss, obviously, is the place where the demons come out. They were incarcerated there, but then they're released. And that's the same place we learn in the first part of Revelation 20, where Satan is bound for a thousand years and then is released. So it seems that the abyss is kind of a temporary holding cell prison. Maybe a jail instead of a prison, a jail for for demons who are eventually released. But there there is this other word, Tartarus, which is also borrowed from Greek mythology, and it only appears once in the New Testament in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And Peter, describing the extra wicked fallen angels or demons, says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and the Greek word translated hell there is Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So Tartarus is similar to Abaddon, the abyss, the pit, the bottomless pit. But what's the difference? Well, Tartarus is like the dungeon of hell because they're never, anybody who goes in there doesn't get out until the judgment of the great day. They are committed to pits of darkness reserved for judgment in Tartarus. Now, do you remember when Jesus was in his earthly ministry and he was, you know, sometimes he'd encounter these demons and they kind of freak out. You remember that? Let me just give you an example. Luke four thirty four. Jesus is walking along. He encounters a demon possessed man and the demon possessed man sees him and the demons speak out and say, let us alone. What business do we have to do with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I mean, there is this terror in these demons. And you, you know, you think demons would be pretty fortified and pretty tough. What were they worried about? Tartarus. They were worried about being cast into that place of confinement, never to be released until the judgment of the great day. You remember the same thing with the Gerizim demoniac, right? Please send us out into the pigs. They're fearful being cast into the pit, the abyss, destroyed in Tartarus. Confined there to the judgment of the great day. So can we go into the pigs? And so he sends them there. They drown the pigs and then they get released. The New Testament also has another term called Gehenna. Gehenna is actually a kind of a transliteration of a Greek word that describes the valley of Hinnom, which is south of Jerusalem. That Jerusalem's kind of a ridge, and right as it dumps in after the old city of David, there's this valley there, and it's the valley of Hinnom. And that valley in the Old Testament, when Israel was not doing well and had gone apostate, were, were sacrificing their children to the idol Moloch. And so it became an accursed place. And of course, nobody would want to build their house there or do anything in the place where you know, idol worship was. And so it became the city dump. And that's what it was in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, that's where people took their trash and their dead animals and the carcasses and guts and skins and ex- executed criminals. And there was all this flesh and trash and they would light it on fire to try and burn it up. And so there was smoke and maggots and this acrid smell and nastiness there. And all you had to be is downwind wind of Gehenna 
and you'd know it was there. And everybody knew. And so Jesus uses it as a synonym for the final resting place of those who hate God and of all demons, the lake of fire. The lake of fire, um, we'll get to in a minute, but let's just talk about this term Hades, the term that is used in our text. Hades is like a synonym for hell. It's a place where both the righteous and the unrighteous um, go. And we see Abraham and Lazarus in one portion and this place where the rich man is and they've died and they've gone down to Sheol or Hades. Um, Peter in Acts chapter two, verse 27, um, even talks about Christ that, uh, he would not, you know, allow his soul to perish in Hades and, and, uh, but would rescue him. Speaking of the resurrections, it seems that even Jesus has gone down there. But the difference is when Jesus died, and descended, he like emptied that place out because now when a believer dies, where do they go to be with? To with Christ, right? I mean, isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 8? He says to be absent for the body is to be present with who? With the Lord. And where is the Lord? He ascended to the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He ascended into heaven. That's why Paul also says in Philippians 1 23, of his desire to depart and be with Christ. That is, when you die, you go to be with Christ. And where is Christ? Christ is in heaven, up, ruling in his heavenly throne. And so now, Hades, though at one time, like Sheol, a place for the righteous and the unrighteous, has now had that resting place, that portion extracted. And now, when you die, you just go to be with Jesus, if you know the Lord. Of course, the most common term that we know of is hell, and hell is just that, it's kind of caused a confusion because a whole bunch of different terms are translated hell, and even though they all have different nuances of meaning, they're all talked about hell, but that's the one that we all know is kind of the bad place that people go to when they are not saved. Now, just picture this. Let's just say you go over to the children's building. We actually have an elevator over there. I want you to know. It's, it's kind of cool. Um, hopefully, we'll get to use it soon. But we have an elevator over there. And let's say you get in the elevator and you notice there's one up button. And then next to it, it says heaven. Okay, And that takes you up into the second floor where all the staff are. It's like heaven up there. Okay, Or there's another option. You get in and let's say there's three down buttons. The first down button says torment for unbelievers. And you could go there. The second down button is jail for demons. And you can go there. And then the third button is Tartarus, the dungeon for demons. That's what the scriptures teach. And then they teach... At the great white throne judgment that God will take death and Hades, Tartarus, the abyss, the bottomless pit, all of that, and he will cast them into the lake of fire. And then there will just be the lake of fire, which is also referred to as the second death in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 and Revelation 21, verse 8. Okay, that is what God says about the afterworld. Um, some of it in the scary parts of, of the different places where you can go. 
And so we're going to kind of end our little academic discussion for now. And I want to go back to talking to you who right now don't know Christ. You know, some people ask me, you know, Pastor Jack, how come you're always preaching the gospel? Because a whole bunch of you need it. You think, well, surely there's not that many. Oh, there's not that many in here who would say I am a God hater and I don't believe in God or I'm not a Christian. But there are many of you who profess to know Jesus, but with your deeds, you deny him. And I fear for your soul. Sure, we have people visiting every Sunday and so I preach the gospel for them. But I'm mostly concerned about you. I cannot endure the thought of you perishing. I can't save you, but I can give you the words of eternal life. I can speak to you the truth that you need to believe. Every week when I'm praying over the prayer sheet, I go through there. I don't even know who all those people are a lot of times. You know, there's all those salvation requests. I just go through them and read them all and say, save them all. And I also say, Lord, use all the people who submitted the the request to share the gospel with them so they can come to Christ. And then, you know, when I'm reading in there about hurt elbows and skin knees and tooth extractions and things like that, you know what I do? I say, Lord, you know, help them get through their sickness. Sure, make them better, but sanctify them if they know you. And if they don't, may this come to know, may they come to know the Lord. The whole prayer sheet to me is come to Jesus. I want you to come to know the Lord. It, it is, it's, it's the torment of life. You know, once I know you know the Lord, I know that God is going to take care of you. He's going to perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. You can go to a different church. I'll see you in heaven. But if you don't know Christ, I just cannot endure it. And so this morning I've tried to be as calm, as Rational. I've tried to reason with you. I've tried to present to you the logical, reasonable truth that if you die, whether it be 20 or 30 or 50 years from now, and you don't know Christ, even if you have lots of knowledge, you'll end up in hell like the rich man. And yes, you may have a funeral and people may weep over you and talk about, oh, they were so this and oh, they were so that and oh, they had such wonderful this and that and did these great things. But if you don't know Christ, it will make no difference. It'll make no difference that you were a good dad or a moral citizen or very philanthropic or gave to hospitals or charities or the poor in other countries. It will make no difference if your friends are laughing and rejoicing and saying it's so great, they're in a better place. If you're not, everyone comforts themselves that you are now at peace. But if you are not at peace, that's what I'm concerned about. You know, you just don't hear people stand up. You know, even if they're atheists, they don't stand up, you know, to give tribute to their friend. And so I'm so glad they just went into nothingness. I've never heard that. Even from the mouth of atheists, they always admit, even in a crowd, I don't believe in God. Then they say, well, they're in a better place. Aha! I just want to stand up and say, that's right, pal, repent. They all seem to believe in an afterlife when when faced with death. And I'm sure if you threw them off the Golden Gate Bridge, they'd get religious on the way down. 
a grand funeral, a sentimental graveside service, a gilded casket with a corpse dressed in a tuxedo will not erase the reality of hell that all people go to who do not know Christ. And Jesus says, my sheep know me. I know them. They follow me. Not they profess to know me, not that they say they're Christians, they follow me. And so I long to see you come to Christ. And so I just want you to know, if you die in your sins, your blood is not on my hands. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Have you done that? Have you been born again? Has your life been changed? Have you died to self and taken up your cross to follow Jesus? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And I have done my best to do that this morning. You need to flee. You need to not gamble with your life. Every day you live, every moment you live without Christ is you're gambling and gambling your soul. For what purpose? So you can have a little temporary pleasure. So you can have control of your own life. Listen to what God says to you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him Turn to the Lord and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus will forgive you. Jesus will forgive you. He died to forgive sinners and only sinners. Turn to Christ and you will be saved forever. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for all those here this morning who know they don't know you. I pray that you would grant them repentance leading to eternal life. I pray for those here who have pretended to be saved, but know in their hearts they're not. I pray for those who look at their lives and realize they're not living like a Christian. They don't love you. They don't love your word. They don't love people. They aren't serving. They aren't reading their Bible or praying. And they've called themselves a Christian, but in their heart, their conscience tells them they're not. I pray for those who are absolutely certain they're on their way to heaven, but are not. I pray that you would reveal to all those who don't know you here this morning that they would see their desperate condition, that they would repent of their sins, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, that they would not gamble with their soul a moment longer, but they would flee to that rock, the fortress, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is more than willing to accept any humble sinner, to wash them clean and make them whiter than snow, Father, help us all leave to leave here today having given our lives to Christ. May no one leave here having stiff-armed you, having rejected the love that you have extended, having rejected Jesus and his death on the cross, but believing and trusting alone in Christ to save them. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.